Hey everyone, it's Cameron. It's good to be with you um, as we continue our series in the Disciplines of Grace. Um, for those of you who were able to make it uh, this past Sunday uh, to our first of our first Sunday gatherings, it was so good to be with you all. Uh, again, I hope everyone who wasn't able to make it, uh, we understand and we know, but uh, we will be having our next one the first Sunday of February back here at the Fremont Building. Uh, so look forward to, to seeing some of you there. And these are always being live streamed as well uh, with the main link in the newsletter and on our website. So um, just a little reminder there. But, but we did start five weeks in the series we're calling The Discipline Race. Uh, just as a way uh, to kick off a new year, hopefully kick off some new habits. And we really do hope for like new actual habits <laughs> to form uh, in each of these five areas that we're going to look at. Um, the goal has been simply uh, w- with a focus on the grace of God. And the constant reminders of the grace of God that that first must happen before these disciplines make any sense. We want to look at these practices that both in scripture and throughout church history have just been bedrock things for being formed into the image of Christ, which is one of the goals of the Christian life, to more and more be sanctified, to more and more be transformed, to more and more be conformed to him. Uh, not in a way that eradicates your uniqueness or our differences. We are all created uniquely, uh, but the way that w- whatever Cameron is uniquely meant to look like is someone fully conformed to the image of God. That's what we want, and the same for you listening as well. Um, and we just noted, and we're going to probably note this every week, that these things are important, these disciplines are important because formation happens all the time. Uh, whether or not that's towards Christ or towards something else, uh, that's the question. But we are in a, in a formation machine of a day, a formation machine of a country, a formation machine of a city, uh, a formation machine technologically with the things that we interact with. Um, so more than ever, uh, we need to have counter practices that help us maintain a foundation and, and relationship and a deep abiding in the Lord. That's what this is about. But one of the angles of kind of formation uh, that culture is sort of doing to us, I want to look at right now, is in, in rooted in the area of pride, in the area of narcissism. I believe we live in a deeply narcissistic culture, a culture that enables it, propagates it, encourages it. Um, self-absorption. Um, our culture and our technological landscape are sort of uniquely shaping us that direction as well. I, I kind of remember I was one of those kids that was on Facebook early on in the first year or two. Probably a lot of you, if you're my age, um, kind of mid-30s, you, you had that experience. But I've seen almost every iteration of Facebook uh you know, since it started, uh, every few years or maybe more frequently than that, they add features, take features away, change the design, do this, do that. But I remember the day that they came out with the status update. Before that, interactions on Facebook, if I recall, were mostly you could post on someone's wall, you could send a direct message, things like that. But this was the first one that was sort of like a mode of communication to everyone, which meant it was sort of a mode of communication to no one. It was this place to sort of broadcast your thoughts just sort of abstractly, but not in dialogue with another person. I guess this is what most social media is now, but at the time it was novel. I was like, this is weird. I'm not, I'm not speaking to someone in a relationship, in a conversation. I'm just sort of publicly musing as if I were a celebrity or a king or something like that. 
And I do believe social media has kind of more and more pushed that direction where it becomes this sort of uh, microphone that sort of, you know, well, I, I think of the Andy Warhol quote. He said, in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes, where we get that, that's where we get that phrase, 15 minutes of fame. Um, and I just feel like that's what social media is now. It's a way of bolstering your own fame and your own acclaim uh, to some disastrous results. But not only that, but it's, it's, you know, if you've read any books or long-form articles or uh, Good Synthesis is that new documentary that came out on Netflix, The Social Dilemma, I recommend that to you if you haven't seen it. But the way our social media is engineered is to exploit the pleasure centers of our brains with how everything works, the likes and the comments and the shares, um, to get people to increasingly feel the need to chase that neurochemical high associated with well-received posts. And we all know the reality is that the vast majority of what gets posted on something like Instagram is the highlight reel, often staged, best possible version of someone's life. Made to look effortless and organic and all that. But, but even, even when we post things meant to sort of be more vulnerable or show some more disappointment or negative things, I think if most of us are being honest, I know for myself when I've done this, it can often just still be a way of, of sort of curating it to such a degree that what you're doing is you're giving a highly, highly filtered version of being sad or being disappointed or whatever, all to the same end. It's, it's, uh, it's vulnerability for some other purpose, um, which it probably isn't real vulnerability. Um, and of course, comparison and envy flare up on these platforms as we're seeing the best of other people. And then we begin to struggle with the fact that our lives don't seem as interesting or as beautiful or as well curated as the people we interact with. So that drives us both to insecurity and resentment and frustration and discouragement, maybe depression. And it drives us into more fully misrepresenting ourselves. Well, I better make my pictures look better. I better make my life look more exciting. I better make my life look more curated or whatever it is. Um, which ends up just creating that same anxiety in other people as they're trying to chase this mirage that you're putting forward. We're all tempted to present unrealistically better and better lives while becoming more and more anxious and materialistic and depressed and self-absorbed. This is forming us into something. The question is what? I, I think that this is forming us out of the, some of our worst places, like, like the places of pride in our hearts. You know, pride is often said to be the most foundational sin. The sin behind the sin of, of eating the, the forbidden fruit in the garden, the sin expressed, uh, even if in very subtle ways, in this idea that I know better than God. Um, I will set the course. I will determine what is the good, the beautiful, the just, the true. I will, in the end, I'll be God. That's, that's the root of pride. So if it's true that the temptation to pride is behind this temptation to narcissism um, that's running rampant on us, we're all being pulled that direction in so many ways, uh, and that the result is that it's twisting and contorting our very souls. What do we do? <laughs> the remedy uh, is, of course, time spent being formed by the one true God of the universe. It's like only there will you find both the deepest love 
and the key to being deeply humbled. <laughs> Only in God will you find what the security you need of, of like, he loves you no matter what. And he has forgiven you if you're in Christ. With the idea that actually you're in a place of deep humility. You are not the one on the throne. He is. And we submit our lives to him. And oh yeah, we can't save ourselves. And, and on and on and on. Everything else is going to get that, that equation wrong except for him. So, today, in addressing this question of, of, of pride, what do we do about that? I want to look at one particular discipline. You could probably say all the disciplines would, would address this, but, but one in particular goes straight for the heart of it, and that's the discipline of service. So, I want to look at it from a few different angles. The first, I want to look at the king who serves. I'm going to read from Matthew 20, 20 through 28. It says, And then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the brothers. But Jesus called, to, called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must become your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the story com comes off with this sort of jockeying of position as this mother is asking for a prominent place for her two sons, and the disciple other disciples are mad because they're frustrated. Like, why is he trying to cut the line, so to speak? And Jesus jumps into this teaching where he first says, look, you know, that phrase is interesting. He's saying, you know how power works in this world. Power, authority, greatness. The natural course of things is that people amass power and then they can begin to burden and trample other people. He says they, they like to lord it over them. They like to exercise the authority over them. That's the way it is. Uh, we see it all around us. But then Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. My kingdom's going to have a different power economy. And he tells them what it's going to look like in verses 27 or 20 and 28. He says, if you want to be great, become a servant. And he goes even further. If you want to be first, become a slave. In broader Greek culture, like slaves were absolutely the lowest rung of society. Like they had basically no authority. And they're totally focused on the agenda of their master. They must be. So what I, what's the equivalent today? You can probably make different cases, but I want you to think, get an image in your head. Who, who is the lowest of the low, sort of least possessing of authority in our culture right now? What comes to mind? You can imagine if Jesus were with us right now saying, look, do you want to be great in my kingdom? Do you want prominence in my kingdom? Become like them. Become like them. Whoever it is that you're thinking of in that low position, become like them. 
power economy of God's kingdom functions exactly the opposite. At least it ought to. In its truest sense, it does. Our church messes it up all the time, but the kingdom itself is the exact opposite power economy from the world. Greatness is found in service. Standing is found in humility. Prominence is found in lowliness. But it's not just, it's not just a humility for me, for thee, but not for me kind of mentality here. Though Jesus would have every right to say that. He is God. He says that his own life and ministry is the model and the, the, the confirmation of this principle. And don't let this truth become stale to you. Fight however you can for it not to be. Because what we have here is the Son of Man, the only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the final true Messiah King of the kingdom of God, the better David, the better Moses, the better sacrifice, the better priest. He came to serve, he says, and to give his life. And that Greek word for serve, diakoneo, it can mean to be someone's intermediary. It can mean to carry out your obligations. It can mean to meet the immediate needs of those around you. It can simply mean to wait tables. Ultimately, it speaks to laying down your agenda to, aids, to aid another's agenda. That's what Jesus did. That's what he came to do. And even think of these two hallmark points in his ministry and life. Like, think of Christmas. We just got done celebrating. Think of the beginning of Jesus' earthly life. God of the universe came into this world because of his great love to be born in human flesh. A vulnerable, weak baby in particularly, particularly humble circumstances. And then he grew. He subjected himself to growing into even just life as a, a boy and then as a man who wasn't particularly strong and powerful. And think of Easter, the end of, of, of Jesus's, well, the end of his ministry in a sense, where the God-man willfully goes to the cross to pay for your sins through his own death. He was tortured and mocked and executed as a criminal, though he was in fact the only perfect person to ever live a perfect life. And he died in our place, died to serve us in the deepest way possible, to give us the gift of forgiveness for our sins, the gift of salvation, the gift of welcome into his family and his future. You go read basically any story about Jesus in the Gospels and you will see service exemplified. Because he came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. And as I was thinking about this, man, I just, I couldn't get it out of my head. I'm, I'm sure many of you were like this, kind of glued to the TV or, or uh, you know, the, the news page or whatever. Wherever you get your news, uh, but the, the events of our country on Wednesday. Um, I was, yeah, just deep, deeply, deeply sad about it. Um, I couldn't help but think of, of the actions of President Trump. <laughs> leading up to the events of Wednesday when this group of like his most extreme supporters rush the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. And the president sort of like <laughs> repeating misinformation and making sweeping claims 
about election fraud to his followers, but then different, much more unrecognizably more modest claims in the sort of filings, the legal filings, the lawsuits uh, that he was filing, toying with dangerous conspiracy theories, and all of this, I, I assume, in an effort to save face and maintain the loyalty of his followers uh, for the coming years. And all this boiled over uh, into the storming of the Capitol building, the mob violence, um, property destruction, and has resulted in, to my knowledge, uh, currently five image bearers losing their lives. Every one of them a child of God, every one of them deserving dignity. Um, to me, it has been a shocking, shocking sacrifice of basic confidence in our electoral system <laughs> and even the sacrifice of lives for the ego of one ruler. That is, that, that's almost like a, a biblical summation, <laughs> summing up, it feels, of, of how power works in this world. And all of this is apart from the disgust <laughs> of seeing the speech and symbols of racism, xenophobia, and white supremacy co-mingled with the name of Jesus in the halls of the Capitol. Um, Lord, we pray that your name would not be defiled anymore. And we have to speak out against this because it's something that's birthed from, from within our ranks, from within the Christian church. The syncretistic religion of sort of this Christian nationalism thing that we're seeing over and over again has no place in God's kingdom. And it's a tragedy. Um, all that to say, Power in the world is going to look a certain way. And um, Jesus is telling us that an indispensable part of the kingdom of God is the call to embrace servanthood. Um, it's an indisputable call of the Christian life done to us and modeled for us by Jesus himself, by our king. That's the kind of kingdom that we're a part of when we're in Christ. That is the service of the king. Okay, number two, the nature of service. And I'm going to read a long, long passage here from Matthew 25, 31 through 46, but, but bear with me. There's a lot going on in this passage uh, that we won't have a chance to get into, but it's very relevant for this. It says, when the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then we, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in person and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 
Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or in prison or sick and did not serve you? Did not minister to you. But it's the same verb, it's serve. Then he will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there's a lot there to unpack, and this is a <laughs> deep and complex passage in a lot of ways, but, uh, but it has profound things to say about service, the nature of service. First, service to your brother or sister is service to the Lord. Did you see that? The idea that as we do to God's beloved, do to him. And most scholars believe he has what he has in view here is the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is part of that. If, if we love one another, we will so telegraph to the world that we are his disciples. There's something about the way the Christian community nurtures and treats and serves one another that's indispensable to our mission as witnesses to who he is. Um, R.T. France, the commentator, says it's like, but men's response to the kingdom this verse is focusing on men's response to the kingdom of heaven as it is presented to them in the person of Jesus' brothers. How you treat, how you serve, how you meet the needs of your brothers and sisters is how you are responding to the king and his kingdom. I think he's got that right. So second is that service is dignifying. Um, note the groups that he, he, he mentions here. It's the hungry, the thirsty, the sojourner or stranger, the naked, the sick, the prisoner. And there's a lot of overlap here with what we talked about in Micah 6, about that quartet of the vulnerable in the Old Testament, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor. Uh, the heart of God has always been for those who were most vulnerable to sort of economic and systemic mishandling of justice. And... Uh, and so uh, here we have very much the same ideas. This isn't to say service shouldn't be done to anyone other than the most vulnerable, but it's a reminder that genuine service does not ascribe to the world's system of values. There's always a temptation in service to only serve or try to meet the needs or care for those for whom you will get something back, even if that's just status or whatever. Um, Genuine service is to say, no, 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 we don't, we don't hold those values. And along with that, it's, it's to say service is not pity or condescension. You need to get, we really need to get that straight. Service is a genuine expression of a genuine recognition of the God given dignity of the other person and a refusal to pretend that you have any more dignity than they do. That there's not a person in this world more deserving of basic dignity than you or less deserving of it than you. And out of that conviction, we can go and serve 
selflessly, not with pity or condescension, but because we see this as a dignified image bearer of the Lord. That's important. So service is dignifying. Third, service we see here is simple and mundane. Uh, we see this, the meeting of simple material needs, food, water, clothing. We see hospitality towards the immigrant, towards the one without community, welcoming them in, visiting them. We see its relational care and pursuit, specifically the visiting of the sick and the imprisoned, those who are, who are locked down. It's to say, I'm going to take the time to just come and be in relationship with you. I'm not going to forget about you. Um, so that's three reasons. For all these reasons, I think we could say service is the antidote to selfishness. It's the antidote, in some ways, to pride. Um, I love these two quotes from Richard Foster in his amazing book. It's just kind of classic of spiritual disciplines, the celebration of discipline. But um, I'll read these to you. I think he's dead on here. He says, Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service, and nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. The flesh whines against service, but screams against hidden service. And then he says, Radical self-denial gives the feel of adventure. If we forsake all, we even have the chance of a glorious martyrdom. But in service, we must experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. Service banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, and the trivial. That's good. <laughs> That's a good quote. Um, there is something uniquely powerful about the way the service doesn't have the mystic allure of some of the other disciplines, important though they are. It's about doing the simple, mundane thing that's easily looked over, that we pray that it isn't, but it's easily looked over, that just helps your, your prideful heart die a thousand little deaths and be shaped into something more tender and more kind and more loving and more sac sacrificial, more humble. And there, there's a danger of a robust life of spiritual disciplines that lacks the discipline of service. Um, be, for these reasons, like there's something to, you know, deep, deep inward quests with, with the Lord, which are good and powerful. And we're going to continue to talk about those things in this series as well. But even talking about the, the discipline of prayer, um, there's something apart from this outward looking, self-sacrificing act of service. Um, there's something that can, that can turn really inward and insular. And I don't know how many of us have had that experience where we're trying to really carve out like deep spiritual time and then like the need of a family member or a friend kind of impedes on it. Um, and we have a moment there. We have a moment to, to take, take the high road. I, I need to be spiritual right now. Allow me to finish my spiritual task. Um, or to recognize this sort of divine interruption here and say, actually, I, I should serve. And it's frustrating because I'm, maybe I'm really in the middle of something beautiful here, but I need to meet this need. Um, yeah. Something to really think about there. So these are all thoughts on, on the nature of service. Now I want to finally just talk very specifically about the discipline of service. Service as a discipline, which is probably not how we often think of it. And I want to begin with this quote from Donald Whitney in his amazing book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. 
He says, serving is as commonplace as the practical needs it seeks to meet. That's why serving must become a spiritual discipline. The flesh connives against its hiddenness and sameness. Two of the deadliest of our sins, sloth and pride, loathe serving. They paint glazes on our eyes and put chains on our hands and feet so that we don't serve as we know we should or even as we want to. If we don't discipline ourselves to serve for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and for the purpose of godliness, we will serve only occasionally or when it's convenient or self-serving. The result will be a quantity and quality of service we will regret when the day of accountability for our service comes. So I think that tees it up really well. I want to talk specifically about the discipline of service uh, in two ways. I want to talk about two spheres where it happens and two types of service. And you can put all these together in different combinations, but the two spheres first is the church and neighbor. Um, we've already talked about Jesus, you know, the, the need to serve, uh, serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what I mean when I say the church, it can mean at the Sunday gathering or whatever, but it can also just mean organically serving brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, but we've talked about that, but, but it goes deeper than what we've mentioned. Like, the, when the New Testament talks about the offices of the church, it talks about two main offices, elders and deacons. And deacon is just a transliteration of the Greek diakonos, which means servants. It's baked into the language of kind of who um, helps lead and serve the church, the word of servant. This is also service is how the spiritual gifts are talked about as well. There's so many spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament, but I, I believe it's a representative list. It's not exhaustive. There are lots of gifts available and that every one of us, every one of you listening, if you are in Christ, you've been gifted spiritually with some way to build up the body that you're meant to use to be a blessing to your neighbors, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, to our church community. And that's an act of service that you can enter into. And I'm just for myself here, like I, I know that preaching and pastoral care and sort of spiritual leadership um, this can be a service. It can be a service to you, uh, or it can be a service to me. Um, and I mean that in a negative sense. Like, um, I guess I'd put it this way. It is probably true that the more sort of upfront and publicly celebrated an act of service is, the more likely, whether this is inside or out the, outside the church, the more likely it is that the person rendering that service isn't gaining the same spirit-forming benefit. Um, if there's a chance for me to get glory or acclaim or to make you guys think I'm smart or more spiritual or funny or whatever, um, my flesh is going to take that a lot of the time. And the actual power of serving in this way gets diminished. Um, and I just want to say that in part as confession, and I recognize that and pray for me in that, but also to dignify the other kinds of service in our church that don't have microphones in front of them because they're crucially important and they may be the most spiritually significant uh, disciplines and, and acts of service in our whole church. Um, lean into those. And that's not to say we ever want to make anyone see, feel unseen or unappreciated in their service, but, but those kinds where it's easier for that to happen, there is a real uh, power to them. And we just want to dignify that and, and hold those up. Um, 
And then just to remember, like uh, service also includes just sim- to the church, just includes simple acts of service to your Christian brothers and sisters, meeting their needs as they come up, being attentive, being responsive. Um, super important. Well, that's the church. There's also neighbor. The great commandment of Jesus is to love your, is to love God and to love your neighbor, which is really anyone you find yourself in proximity with. So, you know, a lot of times you'll find a dichotomy here where some Christians want to say all, you know, our focus of service absolutely has to be on serving in the church, serving the church, making it beautiful as a community. And as it's, it's community of service and love, it becomes more attractive to the outsider. They can begin to comprehend the gospel. Okay. So we don't need to focus on serving those outside. Or it's sort of like, no, we're an outward religion. We need to go. We need to serve. We need to, you know, one of the ways in which we carry the gospel forward is by tilling the soil with acts of service and that kind of thing. Um, That's the real emphasis. And I would just say it's both. It's got to be both. It's service. uh, They complement one another. Um, But certainly we are called to serve and love and sacrifice on behalf of our our neighbors who aren't part of the church. Um, And it is certainly possible to give so much to your church community that you have no time or energy or perspective to serve the neighbor across the street or the random struggling person you come across or the population that's facing crisis in your city or whatever. Um, But for our part at Door of Hope Northeast, we want to always have partnerships and organizations that we're holding up, that we're supporting, that we're, we're, we're doing together. Um, and so currently we have four. We feel like that's a good number for us to take on. But we, we've entered for, for, formal partnerships with organizations like Faithful Friends, which provides like faithful, loving, um, kind of spiritual, relational mentorship to children in our city. First Image, which works with uh, moms and dads dealing with unexpected pregnancy, trying to compassionately help them make uh, compassionate choices. Um, know Me Now, which works with people uh, who are affected by incarceration, both both parents uh, who, who are in prison, who are going to be released to help them transition back to life and the children and the families as units. And Portland Rescue Mission, looking to serve the homeless and addicted and recovery and just this whole web of uh, amazing services that we believe are near and dear to the heart of God. And so um, we want to be doing this as a church and continue to provide opportunities, provide financial support to these organizations and on and on and on because we think it's not only about what we do internally but what we do externally to our city as well. Okay. Two spheres of service, church and neighbor. Now, finally, two types of service, proactive and reactive. And this is really important. By proactive, I mean this sort of intentional, committed, regular, ongoing acts of service. It's to say basically like, I'm going to commit to be there every week at this or every month, or whatever it looks like, but I'm going to make a long-term investment in this person or this group or this church community thing or this whatever it is. It's, it's basically blocking it out for regular time in your schedule. Uh, and this protects against two dangerous distortions that come up with service. One is tourism <laughs> kind of service. You see this a lot in like short-term mission trips where uh, the emphasis really isn't about what's best on these communities we're trying, supposedly trying to serve, but it's it's about having an exotic experience. Um, it's quick entry, 
a sort of a quick fix that often ends up doing more damage than good. And we can do that just as much locally uh, with situations as well. Um, it helps us be part of long-term situations where we can learn and grow and be like actually responsibly helpful over time. And it also protects us against the sort of like social media hacktivism thing, um, which can do a lot of good. Raising awareness can be very, very good. But so often it's, we conflate just tweeting about things with actually serving and <laughs> being a part of them. Hacktivism, sort of uh, just, just talking about a lot of things uh, in whatever medium, it's a, it's a poor substitute for long-term sustained commitment to a people. It's no substitute at all. It, it, it's the kind of thing where you have your eyes on everything but your hands on nothing. And we would much rather be a people who have our hands. Uh, sure, have your eyes as many places as you can, but where we're actually serving intentionally and committedly and sacrificially in an ongoing way uh, with real people and real situations. You can't do that with everything. It limits you. It forces you to to make some choices about what you need and want to be able to do at this time, but it's important. So that's proactive. And then the other is reactive. And that's just the simple willingness to respond to the needs of the moment. It's preparation for, for um, well, I would say the preparation for this comes from your proactive service. If you've built habits of serving, then when the moment comes when you see someone in real need, you're going to be more likely to have flexed those muscles and be willing and ready to respond sacrificially. And this is, this is the goal, like this, like meeting the needs whenever they come, it's sort of the natural outflow of being formed by the identity of Christ, being formed into the identity of a servant. Um, so there you go. Uh, that little matrix, church, neighbor, regular, proactive, ongoing, reactive, occasional, unexpected. Like all those things in combination, I think are a helpful grid for thinking through the discipline of service. And it is a discipline. Don't think for a second that this is, um, this is sort of, I don't know, yeah, it's a nice thing I do, but it doesn't have much bearing on my spiritual life. I believe that if we could become a people who serve, proactively and reactively um, the kind of work that would do to to to, to fortify and strengthen our soul to beat down our pride to fortify our humility and our love for others would just be monumental um, in ways that few other things we could do could even get close to and that is not I know it's, it might be weird. It, that is not separate from your spiritual life. That is your spiritual life. It's a key component of your spiritual life. Um, so I would encourage all of us uh, to pick up this year the spiritual discipline of service. And if, it's, if you want it to be with one of those uh, ministry partners we have, email me. I'll get you connected. If there's some way you, you ha you've thought about maybe wanting to serve in the church in a more uh, proactive way, let me know. And, but that, that we may all be um, the kinds of people who are increasingly responsive to the needs around us, recognizing it as a way to serve the Lord himself and be formed into his image. And you're going to mess up. I'm going to mess up. We're going to serve weirdly and wrongly at times. We're going to find selfishness in there. We're going to make commitments and we're going to drop off. Um, and there's grace for you. 
may the final note of the sermon be that these are indeed disciplines of grace and that your worth before God is not determined by the quality of your service. And it will never be, no matter how good it is or how bad it is. We discipline ourselves after the Lord because he has already expressed his love to us in the most unimaginable way possible because he's already saved us by virtue of Jesus on the cross because he's already declared our worthiness uh, in Jesus. And if all that is true, then we can go, oh my gosh, then I want to serve this God. I want to be like him. I, I want to serve like him. I want to be a part of what he's doing in this world. I want to be a part of the advancing of his kingdom. I want to be a part of the building up of his church. I want to be a part of the healing of our city and on and on and on. It's grace all the way down. Grace motivates us. Grace encourages us. Grace keeps us from distraction. Grace keeps us from despair. These truly are disciplines of grace, but may we lean into them, Door of Hope Northeast. All right. Well, I love you all. Um, I hope that you're doing well this crazy week. Um, I look forward to uh, connecting with, with you in other ways. And uh, yeah, may it all be so for the life of our community. Amen.